Hi everyone, this is Steve Carroll, and this is the InBase Podcast. Today's episode is a complete revamp, a total redo on sepsis. I published the sepsis episode way back in February 2012, and just a little bit has changed. And when I say a little bit, I mean a whole lot. Initially, I was intending to go back to the previous episode and edit it for the changes, but there are just so many new things to talk about that I'm just going to start from scratch. We not only have new sepsis definitions, but also new guidelines from the Surviving Sepsis campaign that just came out about a month ago, and we'll be talking about both in this episode. First, let me say this. While the new sepsis definitions have been around for over a year, I don't think we should totally throw out the old sepsis definitions for the purposes of medical education. The new sepsis definitions, including the QSOFA criteria, assume that you have a baseline understanding of how to recognize sepsis in your patients. I believe that the older definitions provided a good framework about how to recognize severe sepsis and septic shock. However, if I start going through those definitions now, alongside the new definitions, it'll just confuse the issue. So here's what I'm going to do. Posted along with this episode is a separate, shorter episode that reviews just the old sepsis definitions. Basically, I took the old episode and cut out the part where we talk about sepsis definitions. If you want, take a few minutes and listen to that episode, because I think it will give you a good framework about how to recognize sepsis using the older definitions. Before we talk about the new definitions, let's talk about what could lead you to suspect sepsis in the first place from the history and physical exam. Unfortunately, there is no one specific history or physical exam finding that will cause you to suspect sepsis because it's a syndrome with many possible causes. Recognition of sepsis will usually start with the recognition of abnormal vital signs such as fever, tachycardia, hypotension, hypoxia, and tachypnea. So as I always stress on this show, make sure to take a look at all the vital signs and make sure to address any vital signs that are abnormal. The triage respiratory rate probably won't be accurate, so look at the patient as you walk in the room and look to see if you think they're breathing fast or have an increased work of breathing. Ask the patient about how long their symptoms have been going on, what symptoms they are having, and don't forget to ask about any recent procedures or surgeries. For example, is this an oncology patient that got a port inserted a week ago, or someone who had a nephrostomy tube placed yesterday? Do a full review of systems to include fever, headache, stiff neck, cough, shortness of breath, abdominal pain, diarrhea, and new rashes or bumps that could be an abscess. Make sure to get a complete medical history, surgical history, and ask the patients about their medications, allergies, and any recent admissions to the hospital. Finally, make sure to do a complete head-to-toe exam. Don't forget about a complete neurological exam, including walking the patient, if headache and or stiff neck is a major symptom. Make sure to examine every inch of the patient's skin for abscesses, including the perirectal area. Check for any abnormal lung sounds that could indicate pneumonia, and look at the patient's overall work of breathing. Check for abdominal tenderness that could indicate cholecystitis or any other abdominal process. Finally, pay attention to the patient's perfusion. Is their skin well perfused? Is their cap refill normal or is it delayed? Finally, listen to your gut. Sometimes you're going to come into a patient's room and without thinking, say to yourself, this patient is septic, without knowing anything more than the patient had a fever from the triage note and their overall general appearance. Sometimes it will be less obvious, so make sure to get all the important parts of the history and physical to help you pick up those patients with sepsis. Now let's talk about the new definitions of sepsis. First, the category of severe sepsis has been completely eliminated. 
we now only talk in terms of sepsis or septic shock. The old definition of sepsis being SIRS plus a known or suspected source has also changed. Under that old definition, technically a strep pharyngitis who otherwise looks well but happened to meet two out of four SIRS criteria would be considered to have sepsis. Therefore, under the old definitions, we really didn't start getting concerned until the patient had severe sepsis, which was sepsis plus a lactate greater than four, hypotension after two liters of fluid, or new end organ dysfunction. Now that we have eliminated that category of severe sepsis, those patients now fall into the new category labeled just sepsis. The new definition of sepsis is now a known or suspected infection plus at least two of the three new quick SOFA criteria, or QSOFA. This is an abbreviated form of the SOFA score that is usually used in the ICU setting to track the severity of critical illness. Again, to qualify for sepsis, you need to have at least two of the three QSOFA criteria along with a known or suspected source of infection. The QSOFA has three parts. You can remember it with a mnemonic hat. H is for hypotension with a systolic blood pressure less than 90, A is for altermental status, and T is for tachypnea, defined as a respiratory rate of equal or greater than 22 breaths per minute. In the QSOFA definition, there's also the allowance for a rise in the full SOFA score by two points. However, calculating the full SOFA score requires an arterial blood gas to get the partial pressure of oxygen and some other labs that we don't really focus on, such as the bilirubin. The bottom line is that a rise of two points in the full SOFA score is not really useful in the emergency department, so this is not something we're calculating one time, let alone twice. Also, the SOFA score is meant to be compared from one 24-hour period to the next, not within hours of each other, so it's not really helpful unless the patient is boarding your AD for longer than 24 hours. Before we go on, let's think about the new definition of sepsis for a second. Before, a lactate of 4 was enough to start down the sepsis pathway, even if the patient looked good. That definition was capturing a lot of patients who would meet lab criteria for severe sepsis, but were actually not that sick. Now we have raised the bar to define sepsis as the sickest of these patients. Those patients with a known or suspected source plus hypotension, altered mental status, or tachypnea. When you think about it, that's a really sick patient, but it kind of fits what we see. Our sickest sepsis patients are usually altered and or hypotensive and or tachypnic. Before we go any further, let me be clear that you don't just throw on the brakes on an aggressive sepsis resuscitation because an ill-appearing patient has a systolic blood pressure of 95 and a respiratory rate of 20 with a normal mental status. If the patient looks sick but doesn't technically meet QSOFA criteria and you think it's sepsis, keep doing the things that you would do for sepsis. Just realize that if you meet at least two of the QSOFA criteria, that you are in a very sick subset of patients, and those are the patients who will need the most aggressive care. With the new guidelines and definitions, we have eliminated the category of severe sepsis and are now only left with sepsis and septic shock. For septic shock, in a way, this definition has stayed the same with an additional criteria. If you meet the new definition of sepsis but need vasopressors to maintain a map of at least 65, then you're in septic shock. However, there's now an additional criteria in addition to needing pressors. That criteria is a lactate of greater than 2 after, quote, adequate fluid resuscitation. So to meet the technical definition of septic shock, you need to be on pressors and have a lactate of greater than 2 after adequate fluids. This extra criteria has caused some controversy because there are patients who clear their lactate or never spike a lactate to begin with 
who still have a significant risk of mortality. I would say the best way to use this criteria in practice is to make it an OR statement. What I mean is that, in practice, septic shock is defined as the need for pressors to maintain a MAP of at least 65 or a lactate greater than 2 after adequate fluid resuscitation. This additional criteria is telling us that we need to be on the lookout for patients who don't quite clear their lactate after we have fluid resuscitated them. The definition does not specifically define what is adequate fluid resuscitation, so that part is left up to you, the clinician. We'll talk more about fluid responsiveness in a little bit, but basically it comes down to your gestalt and other measures. I'll save that discussion for later. Let's review the sepsis definitions as well as the history and physical exam one more time. Take a good history to include length of symptoms, any recent antibiotic use, and get all the info about past medical and surgical history, recent procedures or surgeries, and recent hospitalizations. Do a complete head-to-toe exam with emphasis on the skin for abscesses, neurological exam for those with fever, altered mental status, and or headache, and or stiff neck. Sepsis is now defined as a known or suspected source of infection with at least two of the three QSOFA criteria. You can remember the QSOFA criteria with a mnemonic hat, H for hypotension, a systolic of blood pressure of less than 90, A for altered mental status, and T for tachypnea, a respiratory rate equal or greater than 22. There's also a separate criteria for a rise in the full SOFA score by two points, but that's not really useful in the ED. That's more for the ICU environment. We have eliminated the category of severe sepsis and are now left with sepsis and septic shock. Septic shock is sepsis requiring vasopressors to maintain a MAP of at least 65 and, technically, a lactate greater than 2 after adequate fluid resuscitation. However, in practice, consider septic shock as needing pressors or a lactate greater than 2 after adequate fluid resuscitation. Before we talk about the labs and imaging necessary for septic patients, let me mention the need to do the right thing for your patients. What I mean by this is to address the patient and their family's wishes before going down an aggressive curative route for the patient's sepsis. Certainly, you are going to pull out all the stops for a 20-year-old with bacterial meningitis, but that same level of care may not be appropriate for your 95-year-old nursing home patient with dementia, a G-tube, and a bad pneumonia. Just to be clear, I'm not proposing that we start any death panels, just that we talk with patients and their families and respect their wishes before we go dropping central lines, taking their airway, and admitting them to the ICU. Have the courage to talk with patients and their families about goals of care before we start the big medicine machine rolling towards what will probably be a poor outcome for some of these patients. I'll put some links in the show notes that are resources for having these discussions, including some excellent talks by Dr. Ashley Shreves, an emergency medicine doc who is an amazing champion for EM palliative care. Now let's talk about the labs and imaging that you'll want to get for patients who are found to be septic. All of these patients will need IV access and labs to include a CBC, a complete metabolic panel, UA and urine culture, blood cultures times two, and a VBG with lactate measurement. These patients should probably all get a chest x-ray to evaluate for pneumonia. I would be remiss not to mention that lung ultrasound can also be helpful to assess for pneumonia versus volume overload in these patients, but that's far beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about today. If you're suspecting meningitis because the patient is febrile and altered and has a headache or stiff neck, then non-contrast head CT and lumbar puncture are necessary to properly diagnose the patient. Do not delay antibiotics for the CT and LP to be completed. 
just make sure that the CT and LP are done in a timely manner. The CT in this case is to look for intracranial mass, hemorrhage, or signs of increased intracranial pressure that may be worsened and cause herniation by doing an LP. This concern is somewhat theoretical, but most would argue that as part of the standard practice to get the CT before the LP if your patient is septic from their meningitis. You'll definitely want to get the CT before an LP for meningitis if the patient is altered, has an abnormal neurological exam, is elderly, or immunocompromised. Remember that we are talking about six septic patients here, not those who are well-appearing and have suspected viral meningitis. If the patient is complaining of abdominal pain and you're suspecting abdominal cause for the patient's sepsis, then a CT of the abdomen and or an abdominal ultrasound will be needed to figure out the source of their sepsis. While bedside ultrasound may help you quickly diagnose cholecystitis, have a low threshold for getting a CT scan so you can see everything inside the abdomen. If the patient's creatinine can tolerate it, do the CT with IV contrast so that intra-abdominal abscesses can be better evaluated. If the patient has an elevated creatinine, which a lot of septic patients do, don't hesitate to just do a non-contrast abdominal CT to look for the same processes and see what you find. Follow your institutional guidelines on this one and use your gestalt when determining which imaging tests your septic patients might need. Now that we've reviewed the new definition of sepsis, Let's talk about how we actually treat septic patients. This has changed so much in the past three years, mostly based on three trials, ARISE, PROMISE, and PROCESS. These three trials were published at about the same time in March 2015. These trials didn't so much change what we were doing with sepsis care. Rather, they confirmed that we were doing the right things, even if we weren't strictly adhering to a certain protocol. Let's back up a little bit. A little bit of history lesson is in order to help you understand where we have come from. In the 1990s, there really wasn't any such thing as aggressive sepsis care in the ED. If patients were septic, maybe they got a liter of fluid and some antibiotics, maybe they even got a central line with some pressors, but the whole aggressive care mindset was just not there. These patients were seen as the ICU's quote-unquote problem and could sit down in the ED for hours without very much attention to good critical care. Then came along Manny Rivers in early goal-directed therapy in 2001. He took very sick, septic patients in his ED and gave them aggressive critical care while still in the ED, after randomizing them to get either the early goal-directed therapy protocol or what was determined to be standard care at the time. The results were impressive, with a reduction in mortality from 46% to 30% when comparing the intervention and control groups. Everyone needs to know about this trial because this is where ED sepsis care all started. So when you get some time, read the original New England Journal of Medicine article and also check out the episode of Essential Evidence that I published back in August 2012. I'll put links to both in the show notes. After the early goal-directed therapy trial was published, it did tremendous things for ED sepsis care. It created sepsis tax forces in hospitals and code sepsis protocols whose ultimate goal was to bring aggressive care to these really sick patients. These patients got a lot more attention given to them, and they got more aggressive care by getting more aggressive fluid resuscitation, earlier antibiotics, and usually faster admission to the ICU where the resuscitation could continue. We started screening patients for sepsis in the ED, and we saw the rise of lactate screening and its use to guide resuscitation, as well as screen patients. However, there seemed to be some areas of early goal-directed therapy that didn't seem necessary for all of our patients. Let's review early goal-directed therapy so we have a basic understanding of it. To be very brief, 
early goal-directed therapy, mandated early aggressive IV fluids and antibiotics, followed by a central line placed above the diaphragm to measure CVP, as well as an arterial line to measure blood pressure. The goal was to get the CVP above a certain number, which would allegedly indicate that the patient had been adequately fluid resuscitated. If the patient's mean arterial pressure, or MAP, was still below 65 after fluid loading, then you would start pressors to maintain a MAP above 65. After that was accomplished, if the patient's central venous oxygen saturation from the central line was below 70% and the hemoglobin was below 10, the protocol had you transfuse them to a hemoglobin above 10 on a theory that the patient needed more hemoglobin to adequately oxygenate their tissues. If the patient still had a low MAP, then you would add dobutamine to their choice of pressors. That was a lot to go through, and don't worry about memorizing it, because, well, frankly, it's not how we do things anymore. While the Rivers trial was huge in bringing awareness to sepsis and showing us that patients can have much better outcomes if we were more aggressive, we started seeing that doing the entire protocol was just not necessary. There was a lot of concern that CVP is not a good measure of the patient's volume status, and that was proven correct in many studies. The Rivers trial also did not mandate one presser over another, but later studies showed norepinephrine to be superior to dopamine. Later trials showed that transfusing septic patients to higher hemoglobins actually caused harm. Finally, there just really isn't any evidence that dobutamine does anything special as compared to other pressors. There was also a major concern over the mandated use of central venous lines in these patients. The concern was that you had a young patient with a community-acquired pneumonia that was fully alert and oriented, but with an elevated lactate but no hypotension. Certainly, this patient would be admitted to the hospital, maybe even the ICU, but they look great after a few liters of fluid, and they aren't hypotensive. The question became, do we really need to insert a central line in the patient if peripheral access is doing just fine for their fluids and antibiotics? Central lines come with all sorts of complications, so it's good to avoid them if possible to increase patient safety. The overarching concern was that the Rivers Protocol overly tied our hands by demanding more aggressive intervention than was necessary, and not allowing clinicians to use their experience and judgment to do what they thought was right for the patient. In order to figure these issues out, there were three multi-center international trials that essentially randomized patients to the Rivers Protocol, a modified version of the Rivers Protocol, or clinician judgment. These three trials, ARISE, PROCESS, and PROMISE, all showed essentially the same thing, that there was no difference in mortality or other important patient outcomes between the three groups. They also showed that patients randomized to the modified protocols and the clinician gestalt groups received fewer central lines and arterial lines. These trials showed that clinician gestalt was as good as any protocol for sepsis and that we could manage certain patients without exposing them to the risk of invasive access or unnecessary blood transfusions. Now that summary of those three trials was a vast simplification, so I'll put some links in the show notes to the many different blogs and podcasts that have discussed these trials in depth and talk about their impact. So by now you're probably saying, show me the money and talk about sepsis treatment already. Fair enough, but I think that very brief summary of the history of ED sepsis care will be useful in understanding how to go forward. Remember that the Rivers Protocol was shown to be equivalent in patient outcomes as compared to clinician judgment, so you would not be completely wrong to use the Rivers Protocol, just a little behind the times. There is one exception to the Rivers Protocol that I would definitely not do, and that is transfusing patients with a persistently low SCVO2 to a hemoglobin of 10. The TRIST trial demonstrated the same outcomes for septic patients randomized to a hemoglobin transfusion threshold 
of 7 versus 9. So we're not transfused to those patients with a hemoglobin of 7 or greater. Except for that caveat, the Rivers Sepsis Protocol can help guide ED sepsis resuscitation while providing similar outcomes to clinician gestalt. So now let's talk about the new approach to sepsis. Scott Weingart for the MCRIT podcast said it best, you don't have to do a lot of crap, you just have to give a crap. This succinctly describes what should be your approach to sepsis care. You have to be aggressive, but you don't need to go sticking lines and tubes in patients that wouldn't otherwise need them. Once you have identified patients with sepsis, immediately start them on IV fluids and antibiotics directed at their suspected source of infection. Let's talk about IV fluids first. The current guidelines recommend a fluid bolus of 30 cc's per kilogram, which, not so surprisingly, works out to about 2 liters of fluid in the typical 70 kilogram male. These patients would often be tachycardic and fluid down, and there is general agreement that a fluid bolus of 2 liters up front is reasonable for just about all patients. However, there are some sepsis experts that argue that we are giving too much fluid in septic patients and that we need a much more cautioned and reasoned approach to fluid resuscitation. That being said, there is no good evidence to show that this more restrictive fluid strategy benefits patients. For the patients in promise, arise, and process, 2 liters was a minimum starting point for all patients, and most would agree that it's reasonable for most patients. There's a lot of debate in this area about fluids and sepsis, but unfortunately not a lot of good data to say one way or the other. The question is really, will the patient be tolerant of more fluids, aka fluid tolerance? Will the patient be able to use those fluids to increase their cardiac output without causing them to be volume overloaded? The question of fluid responsiveness or fluid tolerance is a tricky one, and there are many different possible ways to assess this in patients, which all have varying levels of evidence and no clear winner. First, you can always look and see how the patient is doing after a fluid bolus. Did their heart rate come down? Is their blood pressure up? Do they look more perfused? On the flip side, did the patient develop shortness of breath and crackles in their lungs that could indicate volume overload? So after you give a fluid bolus, look at the patient's response to the fluids, and if the patient improved, then continue with the fluid resuscitation. After a 2-liter bolus, you may choose to lower the rate to 500 mLs an hour if the patient is still in the ED. There are also many ways to assess fluid tolerance with ultrasound and other non-invasive methods. I won't go into them here because that's a whole other topic, but I'll put a link to the MCRIT episode that talks about all possible ways to measure fluid tolerance to include ultrasound and other non-invasive monitoring systems. Next, we should briefly talk about which fluids to use in sepsis. To be clear, there is no great evidence that one fluid outperforms any other fluid in sepsis, but we can be smart about a few things. First, we do know that normal saline has a lot of chloride in it and can lead to hyperchloremic acidosis when you use large volumes of it. This acidosis is of questionable significance, with one study suggesting increased acute kidney injury and need for continuous renal replacement therapy in ICU patients. No one has proven that 1 or 2 liters of normal saline will cause harm, but we can probably be smarter about this. If normal saline is what you have quick access to in the ED, Use that for the first 1 or 2 liters, but then consider switching to lactated ringers or plasma light. These fluids are much closer to what is actually in our intravascular space in terms of pH and electrolytes compared to normal saline. Now let's talk about antibiotic choices. The goal here is to quickly get antibiotics on board that are targeted as accurately as possible for the patient's known or presumed source of sepsis. The temptation here may be to just blast the patient with gorillacillin and be done with it, 
but we can be smart about this as well. Here's a rational choice to antibiotic selection in sepsis. First, let me give a warning that we have changed our thinking a little bit on our standard broad-spectrum antibiotic regimen when we aren't quite sure what infection the patient has. Our go-to broad-spectrum coverage used to be universally Zosin, aka Piperacillin Tazobactam, and Vancomycin. Zosin gets you good broad-spectrum coverage to include gram-negatives and pseudomonas, and Vancomycin covers gram-positives, including MRSA. However, there are studies that showed increased risk of acute kidney injury when using that combo. Therefore, if you aren't sure what exactly you are targeting, a lot of clinicians are reaching for cefepime, a fourth-generation cephalosporin, instead of zosin. So the new combination is cefepime and vancomycin. Cefepime is dosed at 2 grams IV for an adult, and vancomycin must be dosed by weight. The standard dose of vancomycin is usually quoted at 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram, with a maximum of 2 grams. Some advocate even higher dosing for the first dose, with 25 to 30 milligrams per kilogram, with a max of 2 grams as well. This means that unless your patient weighs 50 kilograms, one gram of vancomycin will not be enough. If you can, get a patient weight with a bedside scale. Otherwise, make your best guess as to the patient's weight and dose their vancomycin appropriately. If the patient has a true penicillin allergy, then cefepime is still an okay choice since it's a fourth-generation cephalosporin and studies have supported its use in penicillin allergic patients. If you decide to use zosin for some reason, the dose is 4.5 grams IV for septic patients, although most EDs will stock 3.375 to 5 grams more readily, so you may want to give that as your first initial dose to get the antibiotics in faster, rather than waiting for the pharmacy to send you the higher dose. Check your institution's protocols on this one. One concern with starting broad-spectrum antibiotics is the concern about obtaining blood cultures before that's done. While obtaining blood cultures, urine cultures, and doing a lumbar puncture, if needed, are an important step in determining what infection the patient has and how to treat it, we can't delay initiation of antibiotics to get these cultures because it will cause harm to our patients. It is usually best to start with zosin or cefepime, as these can be administered quickly over a few minutes, while vancomycin usually takes one to two hours to infuse or longer. So get your broad-spectrum antibiotics on board as soon as possible on your sick septic patients and get the cultures as soon as you can. If you have to do a straight stick for your cultures, then do that as the first dose of antibiotics are going in. The best evidence suggests that it will take hours to sterilize CSF after antibiotics, so let them run in as you are obtaining your head CT, if needed, and prepping for the lumbar puncture. While we could throw cefepime and vanc at almost anything and probably get away with it, we should talk about some more targeted antibiotic choices. I'm going to borrow a mnemonic from the ERCast podcast by Rob Orman, and that mnemonic is Lucas, and it's helpful because it reminds us of the various possible locations for an infection. Lucas stands for lung, urine, CNS, abdominal, and skin. Lucas starts with L for lung. Standard coverage for community-acquired pneumonia for dimid patients usually includes levoquin, aka levofloxacin, at 750 mg IV. This may be appropriate for most admitted patients, but if you're meeting QSOFA criteria, then you'll likely need broad-spectrum coverage, especially if you're at risk for healthcare-associated pneumonia, or HCAP. Patients at risk for HCAP are those that are frequently in the hospital or live in a nursing home or long-term care facility. These patients also include those on dialysis and those getting chemotherapy, and possibly those who have been admitted to the hospital for the last two days within the last 90 days. 
However, just because you got your blood drawn at your family doctor's office last week, or you had a knee scope 29 days ago at an outpatient surgical center, doesn't mean that you're at risk for HCAP because you technically fall within those guidelines. Use your judgment here and ask yourself how frequently the patient comes into contact with the healthcare system. If the patient is on dialysis or chemotherapy, then you should definitely treat for HCAP. Otherwise, you may be able to get by with more targeted coverage. Treatment for HCAP includes either zosin or cefepime in addition to vancomycin. You may hear about doing double coverage for pseudomonas by adding levaquin to zosin and vanc or cefepime and vanc. We used to do this, however, the new surviving sepsis guidelines do not recommend double covering pseudomonas anymore. However, guidelines take some time to be put into actual practice, so just keep in mind that you still may see patients given levaquin in addition to cefepime vanc or zosin vanc. The next part of the Lucas mnemonic is U for urine. The main go-to drug here is ceftriaxone, 1 gram IV, but you can also use cefepime, 2 grams IV. Ceftriaxone is a third-generation cephalosporin that has excellent activity against common urinary pathogens. This is a perfect example of why just giving zosin and calling it a day is not right for every patient. At my last institution, urinary E. coli was only 80% sensitive to zosin where it was 98% for ceftriaxone. One pearl here, especially for patients from long-term care facilities, is to check your patient's records to see if they've had any urine cultures in the past. Look for what the sensitivities for different antibiotics are and use that to guide your current treatment. If the patient is known to have resistant organisms in the past, go with a different antibiotic choice. Next we come to C for CNS. The main concern here is bacterial meningitis. This is often treated with ceftriaxone 2 grams IV and vancomycin at 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram, as we talked about before. Acyclovir at 10 milligrams per kilogram should be added on if you suspect HSV meningitis in a case where the patient has vesicles suspicious for HSV infection, they have a history of HSV infection, or if they present as a young patient with a new psychotic break with or without fever. After C in Lucas is A for abdomen. This refers to cholecystitis, ascending cholangitis, appendicitis, complicated diverticulitis, or any intra-abdominal abscess. While the treatment of choice for these patients is surgical drainage, you should add antibiotics on their way to the OR. Zosin 3.375 grams IV is a good choice for cholecystitis and appendicitis. Zosin is also good for complicated diverticulitis, but most will go with Cipro, aka ciprofloxacin, 400 mg IV, and Flagyl, aka metronidazole, 500 mg IV. Ciproflagyl can be used in cases of true penicillin allergy because don't forget that zosin is a penicillin. Finally, S is for skin. Don't forget to do a good skin exam on your patients in all areas, including the axilla, rectum, and groin to look for abscesses. For most skin abscesses in sick patients, zosin or cefepime with vancomycin is appropriate broad-spectrum therapy. The addition of vancomycin is especially important if the patient has risk factors for MRSA, including being frequently hospitalized, such as a dialysis or chemotherapy patient, or has had multiple abscesses in the past. Now let's talk about the use of vasopressors in sepsis. The current thinking is that once the patient has been fluid-loaded with at least two liters of fluid, you think that their tank is full by whatever method you choose or your gestalt, and their mean arterial pressure or MAP is still less than 65, you should start vasopressors. While some experts are postulating that starting vasopressors 
before you're completely fluid loaded may be beneficial by increasing your vascular tone. There's no good evidence to support this practice at this time. I think this practice makes sense when you think about the physiology, but we're not quite there yet. So let's get back to the patient. They have their antibiotics on board, they are fluid loaded, but their MAP is still less than 65. At this point, you should start norepinephrine. You may also hear this call by the trained name Levofed, or more commonly norepi. Norepi is a strong alpha and beta agonist that will provide both increased vascular tone and increased cardiac squeeze. The dose of norepi is 2 mics per minute with a theoretical maximum of 20 mics per minute. Some say up to 30 mics per minute, and some say you can go as high as 1 microgram per kilogram per minute, which would be 70 micrograms per minute in the typical 70 kilogram adult. Just realize that you'll reach a point of diminishing returns above 30 micrograms per minute, but if the patient continues to respond to higher doses of norepinephrine, you can push it higher. While centralized preferred, norepinephrine can safely be run in a good peripheral IV. When I say a good peripheral IV, I mean an 18 or 20 gauge in the patient's antecubital fossa, not a 24 gauge in a tiny hand vein. Some institutions have created protocols that allow norepi infusions to be run peripherally for extended periods of time, but they have certain protocols requiring the size of the vessel and how frequently the IV sites need to be monitored. Whenever you're giving vasopressors peripherally, it is a must to inspect the patient's IV site at least once an hour to check for extravasation or tissue damage. It is common practice in the ICU to check all line sites once an hour, but that may not happen in the ED unless we make an effort to do it. If the patient experiences an extravasation, then you should stop the infusion and give supportive care to the IV site, which may include warm compresses. For serious injuries, ventolamine, an alpha blocker, may be injected directly into tissue. There's a lot more nuance to treating vasopressor extravasation, so I'll stop there and put a link in the show notes with some more resources on this if you're interested. Bottom line is that peripheral vasopressors are safe in the short term in a good IV, and you shouldn't hesitate to start them while preparing for central access. What if norepinephrine does not keep the patient's blood pressure up high enough? There is controversy about what the second-line vasopressor should be, and not a lot of great evidence to guide our choices. You can consider vasopressin at 0.03 units per minute, especially if the patient remains tachycardic on norepinephrine. If the patient is not tachycardic on norepinephrine, you can consider starting epinephrine at 1 to 10 micrograms per minute. Once you have accomplished antibiotics, fluid loading, and pressors, if needed, it's time to go back and reassess what you're doing. Before you go obsessing over repeat labs, reevaluate the patient from head to toe. How is their work of breathing? Are they tiring from their tachypnea and need to be intubated? Are there signs of fluid overload when you listen to their lungs? Better yet, check cardiac output and lungs with ultrasound. Does the patient look better perfused, or are they still cold and clammy? How is their mental status, better or worse? Next, you'll probably want to get a repeat VBG and lactate. If their lactate is improving, you're probably doing something right, and your resuscitation is working. If the lactate hasn't cleared by at least 10% in the first hour, then reevaluate your treatments. Ask yourself if the patient needs more fluid or pressors. Ask yourself if you should semi-electively intubate the patient. When you're critically ill, work of breathing can take up to 30% of your metabolism, so taking away that work of breathing may help the patient improve. Just be careful during that peri-intubation period that you resuscitate as best you can before you intubate to avoid the patient crashing during induction. You'll want to reduce the dose of your sedative for these shocked patients and increase the dose of paralytics. I'll put a link to an excellent episode of MCRIT that talks about this issue. At this point, you should also take care of some housekeeping issues. 
especially in your ventilated patients. If the patient is on a ventilator, sit them up to 30 degrees to avoid ventilator-associated pneumonia and improve their respiratory mechanics. Adjust their tidal volume and other settings to the ARDSNET protocol of 6 to 8 milliliters per kilogram of ideal body weight. We don't use actual body weight because your lung volume doesn't depend on how much you actually weigh. It depends on your height. For example, a female who is 5'5", or 165 centimeters, and 50 kilograms in weight will have the same lung volume as another female who is the same height but weighs 200 kilograms. In other words, your lungs do not grow when your body weight grows. So take a second to calculate ideal body weight, which is based on the patient height. The easiest way to get the height on an MBA patient is to use a tape measurer to measure the patient's half wingspan. What you will do is measure from their sternum to their fingertips and multiply it by two. This gives you a pretty good estimation of the patient's height without having to stand them up. From there, you can use the formula for ideal body weight, which you can find easily online or with an app such as MDCalc. From there, it's all about good critical care. Continue to reassess the patient to see how your interventions are working. If the patient is intubated and or on vasopressors, strongly consider placing arterial line for a better measurement of the patient's blood pressure second to second. Adjust your ventilator settings and bring them the FiO2 to avoid a high PO2, also known as hyperoxia. Hyperoxia is probably not good for any patient, and oxygen is a drug just like anything else, so too much of it is not a good thing. Work with your respiratory therapist to aggressively titrate down the FiO2 on the ventilator. For most patients, a set of 92 or above is just fine and better than continuing to blast them with higher FiO2s. If your patient has lung pathology such as a bad pneumonia or abscess, or they are developing ARDS, they may need higher levels of PEEP than our standard 5 of PEEP. Again, work with your RTs and fine-tune the patient's vent settings to optimize the patient's critical care. Don't forget about surgical control sepsis sources and get your surgeons or interventional radiologists involved if there is something that can be drained either in the OR or the IR suite. Let's review the labs, imaging, and sepsis treatment one more time before we finish up. Labs for a septic patient will include a CBC, complete metabolic panel, UA, urine culture, blood culture times two, and a VBG with lactate. These patients should all get a chest x-ray with a non-contrast head CT being reserved for suspected meningitis and abdominal imaging with CT or ultrasound for any suspected abdominal surgical processes. An LP will also be needed if concerned about meningitis after the head CT. You want to start immediate fluid resuscitation with 30 cc's per kilogram or 2 liters for the average 70 kilogram adult. You can start with normal saline but it's probably best to switch to something more physiologic, such as lactated ringers or plasmolite, once you are past 2 liters in order to avoid hyperchloremic acidosis. You will want to start immediate antibiotics targeted at the suspected source of infection. Our go-to broad-spectrum coverage used to be Zosin, aka Piperacillin tazobactam, and vancomycin, but many clinicians are changing to cefepime and vancomycin. Zosin is dosed at 3.375 grams IV, or 4.5 grams IV, depending on what you have available. Cefepime is dosed at 2 grams IV, and vancomycin should be at least 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram, with a maximum of 2 grams of actual body weight. The mnemonic to consider for all possible causes of infection is Lucas. L is for lung, U is for urine, C is for CNS, A is for admin, and S is for skin. For lungs, pneumonia is the usual culprit. Our usual inpatient community-acquired antibiotic is Leviquin, aka levofloxacin, at 750 mg IV. 
For septic patients, instead of Leviquin, you'll want to give either Zosin and Vancomycin or Cefepi and Vanc to broaden the coverage for other pathogens. The newest surviving sepsis guidelines do not recommend double-covering Pseudomonas with Leviquin in addition to Zosin Vanc or Cefepim Vanc, but you still may see this being done. You will definitely want to cover for HCAP in patients who are on dialysis or chemotherapy, live in a long-term care facility, or have been hospitalized recently for a significant illness. U in Lucas is for urine. The usual antibiotic here is ceftriaxone, which has excellent urinary coverage, is dosed at 1 gram IV, and is safe to use with penicillin allergies. You could also use cefepime, 2 grams IV. Make sure to check for any previous urine cultures to help guide therapy. C is for CNS, which is mostly concerned with meningitis. Don't delay antibiotics for a CT or LP. Get them on board ASAP. Usual antibiotic coverage for meningitis is ceftriaxone at 2 grams IV and vancomycin at 15 to 20 milligrams IV with a max of 2 grams like we just talked about. Add acyclovir at 10 milligrams per kilogram for patients with any HSV lesions, a history of HSV in the past, or younger patients with new psychiatric complaints who you're working on for meningitis. A is for abdomen, and the usual go-to antibiotic here is Zosin at 3.375 grams IV. You can also consider ciprofloxacin, 400 milligrams IV, and flagell, aka metronidazole, 500 milligrams IV, especially for complicated diverticulitis or if the patient is penicillin allergic and can't get Zosin. Finally, S is for skin, and it can be covered with the previously mentioned doses of Zosin and Vanc or Cefepime and Vanc. Once you have fluids and antibiotics on board, reassess the patient. If their mean arterial pressure is below 65 after fluid loading, start pressors. Our go-to presser is norepinephrine at 2 to 20 mics per minute. This can be started in a good peripheral IV while preparing for a central line. A good peripheral IV would be an 18 or 20 gauge in the AC, not a 24 gauge in a small hand vein. If you use peripheral access for vasopressors, then make sure to check the IV sites at least once an hour to check for extravasation. If norepi is not enough to keep the patient's MAP above 65, then add vasopressin at 0.03 units per minute, and you can also consider epinephrine at 1 to 10 micrograms per minute. And that's it for the sepsis update. We'll call it sepsis 3.0, if you will, since this is the third incarnation of sepsis guidelines. Make sure to check out embase.org for the show notes and a list of all the other studies and podcasts that we talked about during this episode. Before we go, let me mention our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. If you have listened to the podcast recently, you know that residents can get free access to great reviews at abmedicine.net slash embasic, and attendees can get a discount on subscriptions while supporting the podcast. So until next time, this is Steve Carroll for EM Basic, signing off.